calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Muses. We are the podcast all about the women in rock and roll, the women in music from the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, to the photographers, the journalists, the musicians themselves. We cover it all here. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome back. Or if it's your first time, nice to meet you. I'm Shanti. And I am Lynx. Shanti, how are you doing? Uh, you don't you, you don't want to know the real answer to that. I've had a kind <laughs> of a tough week. It's been a lot lately. I've been a little run down, but I remain optimistic and happy nonetheless. Yeah. That's the that's the worst answer. I'm so sorry. I'm okay. I'm all right. My garden is beautiful. It's really growing. It's bringing me joy going outside every day and seeing things grow more and more that's been one of my number one joys how are you I'm good yeah you have a very impressive garden I'm jealous of that I every time I see anyone's garden that's like one of the only things that makes me sad that I'm in the city like I'm definitely a city person but I would love to grow my own vegetables and things like that you could have you could have some herbs on your balcony that's true maybe I should look into that yeah and every time you're kind of almost wrapping up dinner, just pop out to your balcony, cut some chives or something. Ooh, that's actually some a great dill. Idea. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm actually going to do that for sure. Okay, great. <laughs> Let me know how it goes. I will. Well, today we're going to talk about cherry vanilla. Amazing. I'm very excited about this. I've read her book more than once. It's called Lick Me: <laughs> How I Became Cherry Vanilla. By way of the Copacabana, Madison Avenue, the Fillmore East, Andy Warhol, David Bowie, and the police. Unreal. Right? She has had quite a life, and she is one incredible woman. And this book came out, I believe, in 2010, so it's been a while. I very, very, very highly recommend everyone who enjoys this episode to go and read the book as well, because 
there are so many more wild adventures that I don't even get into in this because I had to trim it down for the sake of a podcast episode (laughs) but her spirit is also just so incredible and I love how open she is and she really puts it out there and she she talks the way that I feel we all should be able to talk you know just share things be open have fun as long as you're not harming other people do your thing just enjoy life and I think she really embraced that and I really admire that in her and yeah please everyone check out the book but I'm gonna tell you her story as well (sighs) I'm just got my legs up I've got my bubbly drink I'm ready so obviously cherry vanilla was not born cherry vanilla she was born Kathleen Doherty in Woodside which is in Queens New York on October 16th 1943 Kathy was the youngest of four children. I'm going to call her Cherry throughout this, but she doesn't adopt the Cherry persona until later, but I'll tell you about that. But I'm just going to call her Cherry. Sounds good. Both her parents were very hardworking. They were the supers of their building. Their mother was also a telephone operator at a hotel in Manhattan. Her father had a job with the Department of Sanitation. He also drove a truck part-time for a meat market. So she always had a roof over her head. She always had food on the table. But like a lot of women that we talk about on here, her parents really weren't around that much because they were working so hard for their family. While she recounts nice memories with her father, like riding in the car, discovering R&B and doo-wop music on the radio, she also has some incredibly disturbing memories. Obviously, trigger warning here. There's a very horrifying incident in the book where her father took her dog and with the help of her brother performed, I quote, a scalding hot rubber hose abortion on the dog. What? Yeah. She wrote, this in a way was my introduction to the birds and the bees and it very well may have scarred me for life. I hated all men in that moment. The sounds wouldn't stop. I never wanted to feel that helpless again. So that very much, very much affected her. She was six years old. Horrifying. Yes. And of course, the dog was never the same again. And they ended up having to put the dog down, which I'm sure kind of led to Cherry having what sounds to me like PTSD, which then kind of led to a secret OCD condition where she would pick at her cuts and scratches, not ever letting them heal, sometimes for months. And she really felt a lot of shame over that condition. And, of course, it wouldn't be diagnosed for decades to come and affected her kind of every time she would be stressed or had any sort of issues in her life. Okay. So the the dog was going to have puppies? Yeah. And to punish her, he took away the puppies by giving the dog an abortion. By performing a very unethical procedure on a helpless animal. Her dad obviously did not want the puppies. (sighs) And this was his way of dealing with that. Okay. 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 She does have happier memories from childhood as well, thankfully. She and her friends and her sisters would all perform together on the street for the other kids that were around. They were also very mischievous, got into a lot of trouble. But Cherry says that she really learned a lot of good life lessons from all of those experiences. 
Another major experience that helped shape Cherry was getting into the Copa with her parents and not just seeing the live performances, but the bustling social lives of the people who attended. So her mother worked at Hotel 14, and that's where the stars that would perform there would stay. So she had an inn there. And Cherry met many of the big stars of that time, including Jimmy Durante and Dean Martin, who she really adored. <laughs> Cherry also has a memory of the Copa girls or the Latin Quarter girls dyeing their hair pinks and blues. And she was really mesmerized by that and wanted to kind of emulate that one day, which she would. Oh, yeah. She kind of compares herself to Dorothy and Oz and from then kind of dreamed of the time that she would be older and could cross that bridge and, you know, fully participate herself in those scenes. Amazing. So that led to her taking dance classes when she turned eight. She absolutely loved it and she continued for many years. Some family drama happened when she was 14 that shook up the house. Her 19-year-old sister got pregnant and had a quickie marriage and moved out. Her parents were really furious, and her brother also moved out in solidarity with her sister. And her other older sister, who was really the one who had taken care of them all the time when their parents were working, in Cherry words, she was a 25-year-old virgin who gave all of her money that she made to her parents. Aww. Her parents had this rule that you weren't allowed to move out until you were married, but Cherry knew even as a kid that when the time came, she was going to stand up to her parents and she wasn't going to, you know, take it the way that her older sister did. Right on. So all of that chaos was fueled by speed because the entire family, including Cherry, were taking diet pills because her brother was a rep for a drug company back then. And of course, no one knew at the time how bad these kinds of drugs were for people they just knew you know oh i have boundless energy this is great i probably would have loved it honestly probably i'm a, sure as a tired person i probably would have been like yeah this stuff gives me life uh, absolutely like no question i feel like everyone if given the opportunity and again you're given it by a doctor you don't know any better yeah you feel great on it like why wouldn't you that's the slippery slope though okay so Cherry ended up going to an all-girls Catholic high school. She mentions that had she been encouraged, she may have ended up pursuing a career in law, but her parents didn't believe in women going to college. They thought it was a waste of time since you're a woman and you're just going to end up getting married or being a secretary anyways. Yeah, and then there's some parents of the mindset of have your daughter go to university, but she'll come out with the MRS degree. Yeah. Misses. What a time. So as her teen years progressed, she began to delve more into music, going to shows, seeing people like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. She says that she got an incredible rush and a sense of belonging at these rock and roll shows. In the early 60s, girl groups were becoming a thing, and it really gave Cherry a dream of one day maybe singing herself as well. Mm. At school, she would write poetry and turn them into verses. She met a man named Gil when she was 17. He was a few years older than her when they began dating, and through him, she kind of started going to nightclubs in Manhattan, including Club 82, which was a 60s busy hotspot for the LGBTQ community. And she got to see Nino Simone perform in The Village. She says, 
I'd never seen such a fearless woman or heard such heavy music in my life. My ideas about both showbiz and acceptable female behavior were being greatly expanded. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yep. When she graduated, she got a job at SSC&B, which was this prestigious ad agency in Manhattan. She ended up working in the radio and TV department. Gil also worked there and specifically asked her not to take the job, but it had a salary, a starting salary of $65 a week, and it was close enough to showbiz that she couldn't pass it up because she knew she wanted to work in some kind of showbiz field. Yeah. As I mentioned before, she was determined to not let her parents control her like they controlled her sister, so she refused to give them her entire salary. She said, I'll pay $15 a week for my room, and that's what she did. She was determined to have control over her money and her life. So working in advertising in the early 60s, very Mad Men-esque. As you can imagine, tons of parties, discotheques <laughs> were just becoming a thing, Cherry was really having a blast. She left that job for another agency, ad agency, and met even more awesome people who are really opening up her world. She says they introduced her to marijuana, a couple other substances. <laughs> uh, one helped her find a gynecologist to get a diaphragm. They were introducing her to underground film and the art scene. She worked with this woman named Nancy, who was one of the first radio TV producers, and she really took Cherry under her wing. She assisted Nancy with all her shoots, voiceovers, casting, editing, sound mixing. Nancy taught her a lot. And when Nancy left to become a social worker, she suggested that Cherry be her replacement. So Cherry's just 19. Wow. Right? Everyone there loves her. She was kicking butt. She says at the time she didn't realize like what a miracle that was. So she was earning paychecks in the hundreds and was responsible for all these big accounts. Cool. Yeah. So sexuality is a huge part of Cherry's life. And this is when she began to experiment. She was a virgin until she was 18 out of fear of getting pregnant like her sister. But with the diaphragm, her desires were becoming stronger. And of course, that soon changed. Cherry was into group sex, voyeurism. Basically, she was young, naive, open to everything. And yeah, while for some that may be shocking for her, it was just a very natural thing. And there was a lot of innocence to it as well. It was just, you know, young, beautiful people and exploring this new sexual side of themselves. Right on. To quote Cherry, what a great time it was to be so young, so free, and so high. <laughs> so LSD was becoming a major thing. And it's interesting because she talks about how people kind of associate acid with the hippie culture of San Francisco. But really, it started heavily in New York in the early 60s with the Mad Men types. Mm-hmm. These advertisers. Yeah. She was also immersed in... In a scene full of people who are LGBTQ, which makes sense to why she felt so open to explore herself as well. She mentions many different sexual escapades and random boyfriends around this time. Again, I'm not going to put them all in here, but it's such a fun book to read. So I encourage everyone who wants to know all the crazy details, they're in the book. Also, if anybody's worried about being haunted by that uh, first story, you know which one I'm talking about. I did read this book and I forgot about it. 
So yeah, I wish upon the same. <laughs> and that's the most horrifying story. There's nothing like that in the rest of this. Th- uh, thankfully, sorry, I'm not going to keep bringing it up. Yeah, it's in the past now. Okay, but I just wanted to say I have read this book before five years ago and it's all new to me i'm just like ooh, good for her like after reading so many for the podcast <laughs> I, I i've read this book before too and i was still like oh yeah oh yeah like yeah it was it was so much fun to reread so in the late 60s when it came to meeting random dudes we're not quite in late 60s yet but i just wanted to add this now she did this amazing thing she went to tiffany and company and had these little cards made and it, they read, you are beautiful, so am I. And then it had her number on it. And she would hand them out to any man that she saw that she was attracted to. And she says nine times out of ten, they would call. Ooh! Yeah. So clever. Love it. So it was around 1963, 1964, that Cherry began hanging out in Greenwich Village, seeing people like Bob Dylan, all the folk heroes. She saw the Dalton boys played there. She had a fling with Jack Dalton. She says it was with him that her sexual addiction to musicians began to take hold i like how she calls it that i know she's she's such a good writer too honestly um love it i love her i love her so much on her 21st birthday in 1964 she officially moved out of her parents place she ended up moving to east 55th street paying 85 a month ah old new york prices kill me uh, she was finally about to focus more on the music scene, which is where her real interest was. She began working as a DJ two nights a week on top of her advertising job at a club called Opus, which meant flea market, I believe, or of the fleas, something to do with fleas. Yeah. So this made her the only female DJ spinning at a club in New York at the time. She just broke barriers everywhere. Yep. So how was she doing all of this? Drugs, of course. This is when Dr. Bishop enters the picture. Many people would visit Dr. Bishop for his vitamin shots, which were very expensive at $35 a pop, and many would get one or two a day. She talks about his concoctions and how they were all sort of guinea pigs for these weird drug combinations that he would create. He would put like LSD and stimulants and things like that all together. But again, remember, this is all legal at the time, and no one really knew what they were doing to their bodies. Right. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., 
Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. By 1968, Cherry's life was a dream, or at least my dream. She's partying it up in Manhattan, seeing all the hottest bands, Velvet Underground, Jefferson Airplane, Hendrix, Jeff Beck, Janis Joplin, so on and so forth. Lots of LSD still, lots of amazing, interesting friends. Celebrities were coming to the club where she DJed at. She became friends with Liza Minnelli, Joel Schumacher, all these other cool people. She had yet to truly cross that backstage line, though, but she was getting plenty of action elsewhere. She did meet a young musician named Michael Kamen. He would go on to work with many great musicians of the time, and he later became a film composer who did films like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon and all these other major films. Right on. I mention him because she says that it was her first truly meaningful friendship with a musician and she told him about her dreams to work in music and he very much encouraged her because and because he he respected her so much this made her believe in herself even more great good to have a friend like that and yeah it's so nice to hear like good stories because of course there's also asshole music we are we know there are plenty of asshole wait what (laughs) (laughs) By 1969, her advertising jobs were very much on the back burner. She was full-time spinning at the club. She got other cool opportunities from that, one being to DJ for a summer in the French Riviera. That experience was not as enjoyable as it should have been, but she did have one fling out there with Georges Mathieu, Mathieu, who is a well-known French abstract painter. She also made the most of her time over there. She hitchhiked around France, Spain, Holland. Of course, she had flings with many other gorgeous men on the trip. And then she went back to New York City in the fall. Wow. In 1970, she had a revelation when she watched the documentary Groupies. Hey! She says, 
At last, I had a name and a vision for the role I'd been dying to play for so long, along with an awareness of a sisterhood of like-minded role models. There we go. Right? Yeah. She said she'd heard of the GTOs and of Cynthia Plastercaster before, but, and a quoting again, until seeing groupies, I had no idea how inspirational these audacious women would prove to be for me. Love it. Perfect. Cherry was 26 and more determined than ever to make her mark backstage. Through a friend, she began getting odd backstage passes for shows at the Fillmore. And after seeing the documentary, she just began to take it upon herself to go to venues during sound check, you know, poke around, talk to whoever. This is how she came across Burton Cummings from the Guess Who. Okay. <laughs> she struck up a conversation with him and ended up as his date for the evening and having her full first groupie experience. Great. As long as it's not Randy Bachman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she was backstage before and after. She had front row seats. She had Burton singing right to her and a very hot night of sex. They played New York a few times in a short span. So she saw him a few times and went on like a little mini tour with them. By the end, Burton had moved on, and so she also had learned the groupie lesson of having to let go, but she enjoyed her time with the band. I loved this quote, and I wanted to put it in. She said, I felt like I truly belonged there, like I was their friend, and that was really what I wanted most out of being a groupie. In the book, she has many of her poems in it, and she has a beautiful one after this experience called a groupie's lament <laughs> i won't read it but it's great it's in the book you guys have to check it out so also since i'm mentioning this she has another poem in the book later called memo to the muddy minded members of the music medium okay that was one she wrote after a couple of her conquests later snubbed her or you know kind of treated her cruelly and again, not going to read it. It's in the book. So Cherry wanted to be in music, but a friend of hers convinced her to go to an audition with him in the Lower East Side for a play that was called World, Birth of a Nation. And that was written by Jane County. So at this time, Jane was still known as Wayne. And Jane was her stage name. So Jane is an incredible muse. We definitely have to do an episode on her sometime. She was the first openly transgender rock star. And she was great. I love Jane County. All right. The director of the play was Tony and Gracia. They called it the theater of the ridiculous. So you can imagine all the crazy shit that they would do on stage. Lots of nudity, lots of inappropriate kind of in-your-face antics. You know, sounds like it must have been an absolute blast for them. Yeah. So entering that world opened up Cherries. She was soon going to Maxis, Kansas City. And while she had been there before, she'd never been in the infamous back room where all the regulars like Warhol, Danny Fields, Lillian Roxon, who we talk about in the Linda McCartney episode, Iggy Pop, you know, all those people are back there. <sighs> I know, right? She writes, I finally felt like I had made it in a big way and entered the innermost sanctum where the downtown theater and music scenes merged, where I was destined to spend many more nights never to be intimidated by its exclusivity again. No, she's in, baby. She is in there. So I'm not going to go into all the details since 
These are short-lived groupie dalliances, but some of the rock and rollers that Cherry was having a time with were Randy Joe Hobbs, Johnny Winter's bass player, Chucky Blackwell, who played drums for Leon Russell. Hot. Just did an episode on Rita, and we discussed Leon and him touring with Delaney and Bonnie. Cherry actually kind of jumped on that as well and became really good friends with all the guys on that tour and has nothing to say or nothing but great things to say about that whole gang. Lots of wild sex stories. She never fully slept with Leon, but she had sexual encounters with him as well. She had a thing for him. But really, again, it was the friendships that she made that was truly special to her. And they continued on for many years to come. John Hammond, a blues musician that Cherry was nutty over, she nabbed him one night. She was so happy when it happened, but he kicked her out at 4 a.m. saying his wife would be home soon and didn't (laughs) escort her to get a cab or anything. So he was like kind of dick. Also, when I hear John Hammond, I think of Jurassic Park because that's Richard Attenborough. And it was really funny seeing that in the book and immediately picturing Richard Attenborough, even though this John Hammond was young and good looking. <laughs> oh, I wonder if it's the same Hammond from the Almond Brothers crew. And then the same and then Russell Hammond based off him. I mean, how many Hammonds? Ooh. How many? And you said blues? Yeah. I think it might be the same guy. Uh, you prob- you're probably right. Yeah. Up next is another familiar name. Chris Christofferson. Hey. So Cherry made sure she was in front row for his performance at the Gaslight one evening. And she wrote this little poem asking if he'd like to get to know her. And she handed to him as he was leaving the stage. He read it immediately, looked up at her and said, you got me. Nice. Well, I would do the same thing after you showed me those Playgirl photos. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. He's a babe. Super babe. So they spent the night partying at the Chelsea with some other friends. And by 2 a.m., it was down to just a few of them, including Bobby Newworth, Patty Smith Hey-o. as well. So by 3 a.m., it's just her and Patty in a showdown for Chris. <gasps> <laughs> but Chris made Patty get a cab. And him and Cherry had their time. She says, of all the groupie scores she made, Chris was the most romantic. Very sweet, very caring, gentle. Mm. And she thinks that Patty probably got him another night anyway. Of course. In 1971, Cherry was asked if she would like to be the star of a Warhol-produced play (gasps) called Pork. Yes. In the London production. So it was originally performed in New York. Jane County, Sorinda Fox, who we also have an episode on out there for anyone who's listening who hasn't checked that one out. She's also a great muse. They were in the New York one. But the girl who played the lead, for whatever reason, they felt the need to replace her. And Tony, who directed the other stage play Cherry was part of, suggested her to Warhol. So she went into audition which just turned out to be her chatting with Warhol and the, you know, the crew at the factory, and she got the part. Before she left, she had an amazing night, though, with some musicians. John Hammond, Al Cooper, and Long John Baldry did this jam session, and Baldry read some of her poems out loud, and she had just begun to send them into magazines, and she was just starting to get published as a writer in, like, newspapers like Zoot and Cream Magazine and things like that. 
So Sean Phillips, Elton John, and Eric Anderson were also there. And she says it was just this wonderful night of like music and creation. And I wanted to put this in here because of quote where she says, it was one of those moments when a groupie knows she's more than a groupie. Mm -hmm. She's a muse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She lands in England on June 12th, 1971. And that evening, as we know, we call it the groupie magic has her witnessing a recording session with B.B. King. She didn't know anyone in England, but Claudia Lanier, the Iket, who we talk about in Rita's, and yeah, we got to do Claudia one time as well. She gave her Bobby Key's number, so she called him when she got there, and of course her and Cherry and Bobby had a fling that night. She then went straight into rehearsals for the production. It was very grueling. She never had to learn so many lines before. She had to learn how to project her voice. The role also called for her to put on weight, which she said, you know, she enjoyed eating and everything, but it wasn't very good for her spirit, Mm. you know, and made her kind of depressed. But the buzz around the show was really strong. Everyone in London was already kind of treating them like celebrities because, you know, the Warhol thing was a buzz then. The Hard Rock Cafe had just opened the original and they were all hanging out there with all the UK rockers and, you know, really made a point to see all the shows that they could find, the hottest new bands. One such person that caught their attention was David Bowie. Yes. So Dana Gillespie, another person we need to do an episode on. See, there's still so many of them left. I know. Dana was actually Cherry's understudy for Pork and... Dana had a relationship with many rock and rollers, including David Bowie, but the others didn't really know of him yet. (sighs) David ended up writing a song called Andy Warhol because of Dana's involvement in the production, according to Cherry, and one night they all went to catch Bowie's show. So Cherry meets Angie first, and, you know, they're like, oh, we're from the Warhol thing, blah, blah, blah. And during the show, Bowie announced to the audience that they were there. So let's take a moment now because this is where Kathy is beginning to become Cherry. Okay. Kathy's her given name. Over the 60s and early 70s, she used multiple different ones, including Thistle, Indian Summer, a a bunch of random ones. The first time she used Cherry Vanilla was when she was helping out a friend who was working with the activist Abby Hoffman. They were producing tapes that they were going to smuggle into Vietnam and broadcast over the radio. And her friend told her, don't use your real name. And on the spot, she just thought of Cherry Vanilla. Mm -hmm. Then she began using that for writing in magazines. Cream really liked the name Cherry Vanilla. And when Angie and her met, and Angie was like, what's your name? She immediately just said Cherry Vanilla. And that was the first time she ever had introduced herself to someone like that. And when Bowie announced that the Warhol group was there from the stage, he introduced her as Cherry Vanilla and asked her to take a bow. Yeah, it was the first time anyone had introduced her that way. And she did her port character signature move, which was jump up and greet the audience by popping out her tits. Yeah. (laughs) And that was David's first time seeing her. That's how Cherry got started. Oh, Sorry, this is just me sighing a lot because I'm like, what a time in history. I know. I know. Damn. So good. Warhol's films and plays are obviously not for everyone. So the play itself got a lot of mixed reviews, though people did make a point to comment on Cherry being a standout. 
lots of British celebs came out to see it. Angie and David, Mick Ronson. I liked this part in the book because she comments on how exciting it was to be the star and having these people visit her dressing room. And it was like a full circle groupie satisfaction moment. Absolutely. Over the next few weeks, Cherry was partying and getting close with David and Angie, with Dana Gillespie, Mick Ronson, you know, that whole crew. She also mentions hanging out with people like June Child and Marion Faithful. Once again, we have episodes on both of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she really just had found her people and they were having these, you know, fun, outrageous parties and just living it up. Young, beautiful. What a time. So Pork closed after one month and the cast was offered plane tickets home or money. So mm-hmm. her, Jane, and Lee Black Childers, who we talk about in many of our podcast episodes, um, you, you'll find his name in all the memoirs of those people in the New York scene. They decided to stay in London for a while. Right on. Yeah. I, why not, right? She popped down to Paris once again as well. Her and Jane actually auditioned for another play and got the roles, but they were denied work permits, unfortunately. Mm. So back to New York they went. Back at Max's, Cherry noticed the shift from theater to rock and roll happening in the back room. So this is when people like Todd Rundgren, Iggy Pop, Alice Cooper, Lou Reed, and groupies like Sarindra Fox were really taking over back there. Bowie finally made it over to the States. Remember, this is early in his career. He's still kind of like hippie Bowie with the long hair and everything. Mm -hmm. He finally got signed to RCA Records. According to Cherry, the day that he signed with RCA is also the day that he first met both Lou Reed and Iggy Pop for the first time. And the very next day, Iggy Pop signed with Tony DeFreeze, which was Bowie's manager. So rock and roll history happening right here. Oh, yeah. Soon after, Cherry discovered that she was pregnant. So while she was in the UK, she was feeling really ill and like something wasn't right. She was gaining the weight, though she was supposed to for the role and she didn't really think much of it, especially since she actually had an IUD in, which is something I didn't realize existed then. No, me either. Yeah, but she still ended up getting pregnant, unfortunately, and abortions were just recently legal in new york but they cost two hundred dollars and she had to borrow that from her sister cherry knew that you know she didn't want a child at that time and there were other complications as well so she went through it but it really was not easy on her she had really terrible grief over it and Mm -hmm. it re-triggered her ocd for a while so that was a real rough patch for her but she she made it through yeah well Cherry still hadn't found steady work, so she had a fun road trip with a friend to Tulsa, then headed to San Francisco, going along the coast. She saw friends, ended up landing a job to help get the film Rainbow Bridge, which featured Jimi Hendrix distributed. She headed to the Hollywood Hills. Mm. So Chuck Wine directed that film. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he was in the Warhol scene and a really big fixture in Edie Sedgwick's life. Okay. While she was staying in the hills, her next-door neighbors were 22-year-old Don Johnson and 14-year-old Melanie Griffith. Oh, my God. That relationship. Yeah. We'll not get into that. No, we will not. <laughs> she enjoyed it there, but one day she walked in on Don and Chuck and a few others shooting heroin. And 
while she was into drugs and she had she you know tried heroin a couple times that scene was really not for her she does mention that melanie was not there at the time which good she really shouldn't have been there at all (laughs) exactly you you nailed it (laughs) So, yeah, this made her want to go back to New York. So she left L.A. She stopped once more in Tulsa to visit Leon Russell and the boys from that scene. In 1972, Bowie was still not really breaking through on the American charts the way he was in the U.K. So DeFreeze was kind of using them as his connections to promote him over there. This little team of them included Lee, Lee Childers, Tony Z, and Cherry. So they actually weren't getting paid or anything at the time, but they just loved Bowie so much and they wanted to do everything they could to help him break. In Hell yeah. That same spring, she joined a theater troupe once again for Tony and Gracia, his new play called Island. Again, Lee, Z, and Jane and a bunch of others were in it. And Patti Smith was in the cast as well. Very cool. Of Patti, she says they were never close because Patti was standoffish and she could never really tell if it was snobbery or shyness or some residual weirdness over the Christofferson thing but she does mention that Patty would bring along her friends like Robert Maplethorpe and Alan Lanier I think his name is from Blue Oyster Cult Patty dated him and of course everyone loved Patty for bringing around these interesting people in June the Bowie crew were coming to New York to see Elvis mm. perform at Madison Square Garden, and they invited Cherry to join them. She says that they had incredible seats, and being there for that show was one of the greatest thrills of her life. Wow. Going to see Elvis with Bowie. Like, yeah, amazing. She also got to see Bowie's new revamped image with his fire red hair and his body suits. Yes. Cherry was loving life, but having a lot of financial difficulties because she wasn't landing many steady gigs. She did things here and there. She had a lot of big plans that never really made it to fruition. And she was really beginning to worry, but then she got a call that would change her life. Boy was about to launch his new album and persona, Ziggy Stardust. Yes. And DeFreeze, the, his management company, Main Man, was looking to establish an office in New York. They asked Cherry if she wanted to join the crew officially. Oh, what did she say? (laughs) Just kidding. She said, I'll think about it. (laughs) So it was DeFreeze, his girlfriend Melanie, her friend Z, Lee, and Cherry. It was the five of them. The office wasn't set up at all. And this is really where where Cherry took charge. She got all the necessary office supplies. She set up all the accounts with every kind of service they would need, you know, limos, restaurants, sound and light companies, dry cleaners, et cetera, et cetera. The press was buzzing around Bowie now, and Cherry was also the spokesperson for Bowie for many of these pieces. Right. Yes. Okay. I remember this part. She got paid $100 a week, her rent paid, and a charge account at Max's and limo privileges. And both Lee and Z had the same deal. It was very chaotic, a ton of work, but of course, all of her previous work in offices and nightclubs made her really the ideal person for the job. She says, I relish the fact that I was so needed and so appreciated and that my training and talents were being so fully utilized. She was really just perfect for the gig. Oh, yeah. Of course, we all know Bowie finally did blow everyone away in the States and being a part of that was really incredible. Of course, also, 
she eventually had her turn in bed with Bowie. Oh, I'm just waiting to hear about it. <laughs> As we know, him and Angie were very open. And one night, she had this magical time with him. It's interesting and kind of funny because earlier that year, unfortunately, Cherry got this staph infection in her inner thighs due to this horrible, it sounds like a nightmare, like out of a horror movie sequence where her and her friends went swimming and when they were getting out of the water, they were attacked by like thousands of green flies. Ooh. And yeah, she got like they all got bit everywhere. And some of them on her thighs ended up getting infected. So she had these bandages all over them. And she was like, oh, I don't know how to explain this to you. And Bowie's like, oh, do you have the clap? And she's like, no, I, I have these things on my leg. And of course, he completely ignored them he acted as though they weren't there honestly and... it sounds like something that would happen to me <laughs> you you finally get bowie and yeah you got uh not that part just the <laughs> <laughs> just like getting an infection from swimming <laughs> it's like shanti how are you doing it's like i've been better i don't want to talk about it i'm fine oh <laughs> <laughs> uh... Well, it worked out for her, and she says that he was a fantastic lover, and it really felt like they were making love. Beauty. She also really loved Angie, and she did have a sexual experience with Angie as well once. She knew early on that she was not bisexual, but she and Angie were friends, and one night it was just like a fun, innocent thing, and they got it I on. get that. I hear that. Yeah. Yeah. By 1973, Cherry was Bowie's full-time PR woman, and she was able to hire a few more employees to cover some of the office management. She had also fully morphed into Cherry Vanilla, that persona by this point, with everyone calling her that. She was signing things that way. She also developed her own style. She had bobbed hair. She would wear these beautiful 40s and 50s tailored outfits. She really looked fabulous. For her job in promotions, she would fly city to city to promote the shows, check out what the city had to offer in regards to like all of their possible needs. When, But she would also then double back to join the rest of the team for whatever show Bowie was playing because she didn't want to miss any of the Ziggy shows because they were just so phenomenal. Right. She knew. She knew. Next up was the Aladdin Sane tours, and they all headed over to Europe. So Cherry talks about how difficult the Europe PR was. There was tons of mix-ups. Cell phones didn't exist. So you get on a plane or a train thinking like, okay, I set everything up. Everything's going well. And then you get off only to find, you know, a fuck-ups. Mm -hmm. It wasn't smooth sailing. And she did stress about her job here and there. But she does talk about Bowie being encouraging. And when she did a good job, he would always make sure that she knew it. Awesome. Main Man didn't just represent Bowie. Along with promoting him, she was also promoting other artists like Iggy Pop, Martha Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Jane County, and many more. So business was like really booming. And soon she delegated a lot of her old duties to others. And she began focusing on writing and producing commercials and music videos. Cool. Yeah. She moved from PR to the VP position as the head of Main Man's new audiovisual division. I'm so turned on right now. She's just the most badass woman ever. And I love her drive. Like, holy crap. She made things happen for herself, you know? And it wasn't just the speed. 
It wasn't just the speed. <laughs> For one of the shoots she did, Cherry acted in it, and she had her hair dyed a shocking bright red, which was really the final step in the Cherry Vanilla persona. In Cherry's book, we get another story about our favorite Hollywood playboy. I was waiting. I almost <laughs> just yelled out his name randomly. Just Warren Beatty. Yes. This time, Cherry is obviously the aggressor. This is a fun story. She's in L.A. Warren Beatty lived in the penthouse of the Beverly Wilshire, and she was staying there. So one day, she sends him a dozen red roses with a card signed Cherry Vanilla. Next day, she sends a single rose accompanied by a poem. Third day happened to be Halloween, and she sends him a pair of split crotch panties stuffed inside a Tampax box inside the dust jacket of John Lilly's center of the cyclone. And within minutes, Warren Beatty is knocking on her door. So, okay. 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 But her gifts came while he was with his girlfriend at the time. And I was shocked, but I don't know why I'm shocked at anyone sleeping with Warren Beatty anymore. But it was Joni Mitchell. Joni. She says that Warren grabbed her and spun her around a couple times and really, like, they loved the gifts. And they made themselves at home on the couch. She says that her and Joni did some cocaine, but Warren passed on the drugs. Warren told her that the first two gifts when they came, she thought he thought that they were from Joni. And that was a huge compliment to her because it included the poem. And Joni's, of course, a great writer. Right. So that made her really feel good. So she didn't sleep with Warren Beatty, but she's still got a good story nonetheless. Imagine doing cocaine with Joni Mitchell. I know, right? And with Warren Beatty there, just like having a time. By 1974, things at Main Man were getting a little tense because of Bowie's relationship with his manager, Tony DeFreeze. David and Angie were seeing DeFreeze get rich off Bowie's earnings in a way that Bowie really wasn't. Apparently, he had this really terrible contract. Get this. He was splitting his earnings 50-50 after expenses. <laughs> right? Okay. And he's finally kind of talking to his other rock star friends who are good with business, like Mick Jagger. And, you know, it was obvious to everyone DeFreeze was going to be on his way out because that's not a good deal. That is not a good deal. I wish I did a good Mick Jagger. It would be like, oh, no, no, that's no good. You're right. That was no good. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so things at Main Man are getting a little sour. Not only that, but in his personal life, too. Like, Angie and him are kind of on their way out as well. So during this period... Cherry's friendship with David was quite strong, though, and he would often confide in her, share wild stories. They would sleep together here and there. She mentions some crazy stories where clearly Bowie is on some crazy drugs. Like, there's a story about, like, he thought young groupies put a hex on him or some shit. Like, he was out there for a while, right? Yeah, we're talking, like, uh, the diet of milk and peppers era. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, things weren't great but her relationship with Bowie was still good at the time of course because main man was kind of coming to an end her time there was as well 
And DeFries gave her two grand to start her own company, which she called Vanilla Productions. And they were going to make commercials and videos for other rock artists. But unfortunately, Cherry was like really ahead of her time with this. Like MTV wasn't a thing then. So her company unfortunately didn't last very long. But she mm-hmm. clearly knew where things were headed. Then she created her own limited edition book off of her diaries. And she called it Pop-Tart Compositions. And that was a hit. She sold a bunch with her friends and like people in the scene. There were multiple occasions where she almost got writing and on-camera gigs discussing her groupie lifestyle Uh, again though she was ahead of her time and it was considered like too risque for those opportunities to ever kind of follow through around christmas of 74 she landed her first ever professional cabaret gig as hollywood lawn's opening act once again if you want to know about hollywood lawn we have another episode about her and other great Warhol superstars called Walk on the Wild Side. Look that one up. So for her cabaret show, she was able to tell some stories, read some poems, and she was also asked to perform some songs, which she hadn't done before. She ended up with three original songs. They opened in January of 75. On closing night, both Bowie and Mick Jagger came to see her and Holly perform. Wow. Right? Danny Fields wrote a great review of her act, This experience was so great for her that within a few months, she really became a popular cabaret entertainer and was writing and directing her own shows, which included skits and songs and stories and just all of her wildness. She was working with multiple talented musicians, turning her poems into numbers, and soon she had her own band. But that was really not smooth sailing at all because many of these musicians were very talented And they wanted more money, which really wasn't a possibility on the amount that was coming in. So there were musicians kind of going in and out, in and out. But she was still having success, though not like massive success, but good success filling out smaller clubs and whatnot. By the fall of 75, she was a regular headliner at Max's. She was trying to record demos, get a deal. But, you know, not surprising. Most people kind of wanted to take advantage of her. They would offer deals, but be like, you have to give us your publishing rights and all of that. So she turned them down. She also mentions how seeing people like Debbie Harry and Patti Smith do so well with a band. While obviously she supported them, it hurt to see that they had backing bands that like really supported and believed in them. And she couldn't get her own band to like stick with her long enough to like really pursue a, um, a contract and everything. Mm-hmm. For a while, she was super stressed out. Her OCD was triggered. She really started to doubt if she would ever make an album, but she was still playing plenty of gigs. She also got to do a very fun personal performance for one of her stories. So her friend Nancy was also a groupie. She was dating Ringo Starr at the time. And Ringo asked Cherry if she would do a birthday performance for John Lennon. So Yoko was in on this as well. And so one day she shows up at the Dakota on John's birthday, bar stool in tow, and was ushered in by Yoko. So John realizes, oh, this is going to be a performance thing. So he's like taking the stool, placing it under a light, like shining a light on her, giving her a spotlight. And he brought a recorder out to tape the performance. And of course, as you know, Cherry... It was just wild performance with multiple voices and air humping and all crazy wild shit. 
And she says Yoko was just busting a gut the entire time. <gasps> and John just sat in stunned silence for a while before he got into it. And by the end, they gave her a standing ovation. Yes. The story she performed is in the book, for those curious. It's kind of her like X-rated version of Romeo and Juliet and like the way she wanted it to be or whatever. And on her way out, John gave her a 12-year-old bottle of whiskey. And mm-hmm. she'd never met them before, but she says that she got a huge thrill because John actually knew who she was and said, like, oh, we saw you before, like, blah, blah, blah. So it really made her day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the fall of 76, Miles Copeland saw Cherry and her band perform and told her if she wanted some gigs in the UK that he could book her a tour. So Miles hadn't yet, but would in a few years found IRS records. And they would go on to produce bands like R.E.M., The Bangles, The Cramps, Go-Go's, and of course, The Police, who his brother Stuart was in. Okay. He also managed Sting's career too, acting and solo later on. None of that had happened yet though. And what was happening was the birth of punk rock, really. And Cherry's mentality obviously certainly belonged in the punk category. And her favorite stage outfit had become this metallic gold short shorts, sometimes no shorts at all, Mm -hmm. and this shirt emblazoned with the words lick me across it, which again is the book's title. Cherry was at first kind of on the fence about going to England, but one day she went to Max's and she heard the Sex Pistols Anarchy in the UK on and she was like, whoa, okay, like I get it. I get this punk thing. Like I want to be a part of it. I need to be. So she ends up going over there with her boyfriend at the time, which was her guitarist. His name was Louie. They head over there at the beginning of 1977. Miles knew who to get to fill out Cherry's band, her, his brother Stuart, and Sting, who were also <laughs> going to be the openers for her band they were going on, you know, their first tours as the police. Wow. Yeah, so amazing. It was really fun, but very grueling. And Cherry do- soon discovered she was once again pregnant with Louis's baby. Hmm. She talks about how he really kind of begged her not to have it. He didn't want it. He even, like, says that he was going to leave her and everything if she did. And, of course, she also was just exploring this rock and roll side, this punk side. Like, she wasn't ready to have a child either so she had another abortion she had to take time off a bit from the tour to you know heal and deal with that before hopping back into the insanity once more cherry ended up getting her record deal with rca she only discusses this in the epilogue of her book so her deal with them is like incredibly and frustrating they really never put any money into promoting her and you know, supporting her the way that she should have been. She had two albums with them, Bad Girl and Venus Divinal. They came out 78 and 79. That whole experience was so frustrating for her that she kind of put that dream behind her. Mm. Being a rock star just was so off-putting to her because of that. Her and Louis eventually split. She ended up marrying a 21-year-old German boy. (laughs) He only gets one sentence in the book. Like, I married him... It didn't last long. (laughs) Okay. 
She says her, she reinvented herself multiple times over the years, but her true passion has always been writing, and she continued to write all, all that time for any magazine that would publish her, all the magazines you can think of, you know, that were big at the time. She also had random jobs. She, she actually established and ran one of America's first phone sex agencies. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. She also had, like, weird jobs searching for searching undercover for missing children again she doesn't say anything else about that but i'm like what (laughs) okay um she worked as a landscaper a lacombe makeup artist she helped produce some shows in new york did a few more plays herself in 1985 she got arrested at a hotel under the suspicion of being a sex worker she had to go to jail for the night she was there on a business meeting like a film business meeting (laughs) And you know what she did? She sued the hotel and they had to settle out of court. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, she went through some real lows with depression for a time. She says that she kind of lost everything. She was homeless for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. Before establishing um, Europa Entertainment, which was the U.S. office for the composer Vangelis. She says that her association with him was one of the greatest of her life. And she ran that for many years. I think that ended in 2014. She also says that she put her sex life behind her when she turned 40 and she's never felt so free. Hmm. She said she had enough sex to last her a lifetime. Just not her thing anymore. She still occasionally suffers from OCD when stressed. She says that later on she learned that she could never have actually had those kids and Mm -hmm. it probably would have been a greater tragedy had she tried because of this wall that she has down the middle of her uterus. So it turned out to be maybe a life-saving thing for her. Mm. Yeah. She does say that her life is now filled with a lot of younger people, though, who, like us, you know, are fascinated with her and all that she's accomplished and... So she's got great people around her. She's very private now. She has no social media. She lives in California. She's still kind of working on different film projects and continues to write. And that's Cherry's story. Wow. Yeah. What a story. She's just one of the most fascinating, liberated, fun, free women and... As you can see, she's she worked so incredibly hard. And it's amazing to me that, like, you know, all of that time with Bowie and everything, she was just in, like, her late 20s, early 30s, like, kicking butt. Yeah. Making things happen. Like, blows me away. And, yes, again, read the book. Everyone should read the book. It's such a fun one. I've read it twice now. I'm def- I'll read it again, mm-hmm. I'm sure, in a couple years. It, she's just so fun so talented so talented yeah so sexy <laughs> that was so much fun to be a part of that scene you know at least we get to live it through these like i'm so glad these women write these memoirs and that we get to discuss and share it with everyone else as well yes what a fabulous life absolutely yeah i just got transported there thank you you're welcome. what a treat and Thanks to for everyone who's listening. As always, you can find us on social media everywhere, TikTok, 
Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on everything Muses Pod, Muses Podcast. You'll find yeah. us. Just um, a couple episodes left, and then we're going to take a break. Yeah. We are going to enjoy our August and also work hard to bring great episodes for the fall. And yeah, we'll be back in September, uh, bi-weekly in September. Yeah. All right, Lynx, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by us, Chantella Mew and Lynx O'Leary. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.